Thanks very much, Rebecca. So here's uh, Dale's. Um, uh, th- there are times when I know that I'm over my head, and I, this subject of uh, Christianity and um, and science is is not something that I could do. But Dale is uniquely qualified in this way. He's got uh, both masters and and bachelors in some science-related degree. He'll tell you. <laughs> but anyway, it's great to have you back with us, Dale. Um, uh, could we give him a warm welcome this morning? Rule one here, you always get your facts straight. Yes. Well, thank you for that welcome. It's great to be back. We have enormous, uh, my wife Pat and I have enormous affection for all of you here at Chartin. And uh, it's great to see some familiar faces and lots of new faces, which is exactly how it should be. Um, I have produced some notes to accompany the sermon. There's a little four-point kind of route map to try and get to at least some destinations on route in case you get lost, which if you do, it's my fault. I'm sure, but the sermon is even longer than the notices, so you may need uh, some assistance with that. And also some resources I've listed, both in print and on the web. It's a completely personal choice of resources. They're just things that I have found helpful. That's the only reason I'm commending them to you. There's lots of other stuff out there with different points of views, but they're things that I have found helpful, so I commend them to you. As we look uh, again at the scriptures in this topic, uh, let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you that all truth is your truth and help us to be bold in our understanding and seeking the truth. Thank you that Jesus is the truth. And we pray with the psalmist that uh, may the words of our lips and the thoughts and meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, is science fundamentally opposed to Christianity? Is it possible to have a creative and truthful engagement between science and Christian faith? Or is science inevitably the enemy and opponent of Christianity? And the first point that I've made today on my handout is, is what is the, the model of engagement? Because to some degree, how we frame the question, our interaction will determine its outcome. Does it have to be a battle? Is the only model of engagement of science and Christianity one of conflict, or is there some other way? To take one obvious example, is there an uncrossable gulf fixed between, on the one hand, believing in God as creator of heaven and earth, such as Psalm 19 and Colossians 1 upholds, and is spoken of a host of other biblical texts, not least Genesis 1, and on the other hand, the belief that our universe and life on this planet developed gradually over an inconceivably long period of time. At first sight, there are plenty of reasons for such conflict. Uh, The media, at least in the West, in the UK and the US, frequently quote eminent scientists making scathing denunciations of any kind of religious faith. Among the most famous, most extreme and notorious is Richard Dawkins, a zoologist and a professor of public understanding of science at Oxford University. The mood of his approach and engagement is caught in this review of his book, The Blind Watchmaker, in the Times of London. They write, Richard Dawkins has updated evolution. His subject is nothing less than the meaning of life, capital M, capital L, interestingly. And he attacks it with an evangelical fervor of a clergyman and the mind of a scientist. 
just in passing, I always wonder how the review would sound if it talked about the evangelical fervor of a scientist in the mind of a clergyman. But there you go. Now, such a conflict-driven approach by either Christians or scientists puts science and faith in opposite corners of the ring. For some Christians, a particular interpretation of Genesis is a necessary part of genuine faith. For some scientists, Christian faith is at best ridiculous, and at worst, as Richard Dawkins says, it is on a par with the hydrogen bomb as a cause of evil. Not a lot of room for maneuver here. So at the very least, I have to concede that some scientists are opposed to Christianity, and some Christians are opposed to the findings of science. But that is a completely different saying to science and faith are themselves opposed. Now, in subtle and not-so-subtle ways, popular culture reflects this understanding of faith and science as competing and irreconcilable. I don't know if a few years ago uh, you watched uh, Lost, that uh, baffling uh, TV series. And uh, there was a conversation in Lost in one episode between two of the key characters, and the conversation goes like this. Locke says to Jack, that's why you and I don't see eye to eye sometimes, Jack, because you're a man of science. Jack replies to the question, and what does that make you? Locke's answer, me, I'm a man of faith. So where does that leave me and people like me who claim to be a person of science and of faith? And what about the thoughtful person considering the claims of Christ? Can they do this with a genuinely scientific outlook? Well, time for my personal confession. Yes, as he alluded to, I am a scientist and a Christian. And my background is relevant and my own journey is relevant to the way I approach this topic. I was fascinated by science and the natural world from my earliest years. Even as quite a young child, the Christmas presents that excited me most were a microscope, a telescope, a chemistry set, especially as it was not difficult to figure out how to make loud explosions and very bad smells. Uh, My own formative years as a young Christian were spent working out my understanding of biblical faith and studying and researching science. Uh, I came to faith in my first year of a degree in natural sciences at Cambridge University. I note with horror that last week he alleged that I went to Oxford. (laughs) Only the Brits among us can appreciate what an insult that is. Uh, After graduation, I spent two further years uh, teaching and researching in an interdisciplinary neuroscience group at the University of British Columbia. And my colleagues were all very intelligent and highly skeptical. Most of them thought I had committed intellectual suicide by being a Christian. Uh, I always counter that accusation by asserting that I believe science is about the search for truth, and that unites my faith and scientific endeavor. So the early days were difficult because I felt criticized by my colleagues at work for being a Christian, and actually I felt criticized by my friends at church for being a scientist. Because many of my friends were uncomfortable with my background in biology and psychology. And of course, they had the inevitable, I dare to say slightly, no, I won't say it. They had the inevitable questions about science and Genesis. Also, in many churches, 
there is an unspoken and unbiblical subconscious hierarchy of the godliness of different professions. At the top, there are missionaries and clergy and other church workers. And then kind of come the caring professionals, maybe nurses, teachers, doctors. And right at the bottom, you get criminals, bankers, (laughs) drug dealers, and scientists. But personally, I am convinced that there are ways for faith and science to enrich the other with integrity. This means that genuine science and true faith are not in opposition, necessarily. A lot hinges on those two innocent words, genuine and true. History suggests that uh, the development of modern science finds its roots in belief and trust in God. Uh, Modern science arises out of the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. As C.S. Lewis summarizes, People became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. In the pre-scientific era, very often things were seen as random events or non-understandable events. And yet the sense of a law in nature gives you the hope of finding the rationality. It is this conviction that leads uh, Francis Bacon, born back in 1561, and regarded by many as the father of modern science to teach that God has provided us with two books, the book of nature and the Bible, and that to be really properly educated, one should give one's mind to studying both. That's the perfect commentary on Psalm 19 that we heard read earlier, the balance between the heavens declaring the glory of God and the uniquely rewarding insights brought by the law the statutes, and the precepts of God that we find in our Bibles. C.S. Lewis wisely puts this relationship like this. Nature never taught me that there exists a God of glory and of infinite majesty. I had to learn that in other ways. But nature gave the word glory a meaning for me. I still do not know where else I could have found one. And many of the towering figures of science agree with Bacon. Uh, Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Newton, Faraday, Babbage, Mendel, Pasteur, Kelvin, Clark, Maxwell, all believed in God, and most were Christian. And their belief in God, far from being a hindrance to their science, was often the main inspiration, and what then they were not afraid to say so. The driving force behind Galileo's questioning mind, for example, It's his deep inner conviction that the creator who, he says, endowed us with the senses, reason, and intellect would not have us fail to gain the knowledge he can give us through them. Johannes Kepler first used the phrase, thinking God's thoughts after him, and saw God as having imposed a rational order on the world that is revealed to us in the beauty of the language of mathematics. That lies a million miles away from the current crop of 21st century militant atheists. Now, the current perceived conflict between science and faith is not with science itself and faith. Past history and the existence of present-day Christian scientists of great renown uh, proves this. But real and inevitable conflict does arise between two completely opposed worldviews. And that's the second point that I make on that little uh, series of notes. Um, 
it's a clash of worldviews. Belief in God must clash with a worldview that says not only there is no God, but there is nothing other than the material world. And every aspect of life and the universe reflects a closed system of cause and effect. Everything, and I do mean everything, is determined by ultimately physical causes. And this worldview, when taken to its logical conclusion, is described as reductionism or determinism, scientism, or even nothing buttery. It says that you and I are nothing more than the aggregation of molecules that happens to be here right now. What we call thought and the illusion of consciousness is nothing but the outcome of the arrangement of the molecules in a few pounds of gray matter that is conveniently located between our ears. And those views have been dictated by the outcome of time and blind chance. The ultimate goal of this reductionism is to reduce all human behavior, our likes and dislikes, the mental and emotional landscape to our lives, to physics. Uh, Francis Crick was one of the Cambridge scientists who figured out the double helix of uh, DNA, a, a wonderful and great achievement. I have sat at the very same table in the coaching in the Eagle in Cambridge where he and Watson sat and figured out and drew diagrams. It, it's great. Well, that's just the beer. But um, it's a great privilege, but I completely disagree with this, uh, this great man uh, when he talks about his understanding of the world. He says, Francis Crick, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Really? Because here is the real clash. Not between science and faith or the Bible and science of evolution, but this worldview over against the Christian view of the universe and humanity. I mean, there are huge problems with this materialist worldview, uh, not just from a, a, a Christian point of view by any means, all sorts of philosophical issues. Um, what does anyone make of the experience of what it is to be human? That's a really sensible question. What about love and fear? Are there meaningless neural patterns? What are the concepts of truth, beauty, and consciousness? This extraordinary thing that I think, in some sense, I do know who I am, or at least that I am. I mean, is the Mona Lisa really nothing more than molecules of paint scattered on a canvas? And what about thought itself? If it is nothing more than the physical activity of molecules, how can we trust the thought processes that bring us to this conclusion? That's not a cheap shot. It's really serious. Because the logic of this kind of determinism seems to soar off the branch on which we are sitting. Maybe an image for some light relief here, just to... Uh, there we go. I mean, that, that's basically, ultimately, what, what reductionism does. Because if, if Crick's thesis is correct... We could never know it in any meaningful sense. It destroys rationality. Thought is replaced by nothing more than electrochemical neural events. And two such events cannot hold a rational discourse. They are neither right nor wrong. They simply happen. Thank you. We can probably put that one down for a moment. 
this is what comes into conflict with Christian faith at the deepest possible level. Not science itself, but a materialistic, determinist worldview shared by some, but not all, scientists. Because they have to reject faith out of hand. Along, of course, with much of human experience, if they have the courage to follow their convictions to their logical conclusion. My response to this clash of worldviews is that both science and faith need proper humility and proper confidence. That would be the third point in my little list uh, that I've given. Proper humility and proper confidence. I mean, science is great. It describes and explains stuff. Maybe that picture of the galaxy there would be great. You know, we, we, we look at the universe and we find out really exciting stuff about it. Things that stretch our imaginations to begin to comprehend. You know, for many people, this is the power and fascination of science. Science is about gaining knowledge that enables us to understand and to do things that we could not do without it. It gives us power, in a sense, over nature, for good or for ill, if we accept such categories. But how much does science explain, and what are the limits? Some people think there are no limits. This is the materialist end of the spectrum I was talking about. And such people regard all talk about God and religion and faith as outside of science and therefore not objectively true and probably really don't exist. They claim that science knows or will know the answers to all the questions worth asking and that all other questions are non-questions or pseudo-questions. Really? Is this true? And what scientific basis could anyone have for coming to this conclusion? Uh, Francis Collins, uh, world-famous and renowned geneticist and director of the Human Genome Project, emphasizes that as he says, science is powerless to answer such questions as, why did the universe come into being? What is the meaning of human existence? What happens when we die? Science needs to have the, question, uh, the humility to accept there are real questions, vital questions, that lie outside its domain. And the humility to admit that for some people, science is practically inseparable from a commitment to an atheistic viewpoint, a viewpoint that is based on their philosophy and not kind of any scientific process. And science, too, needs to admit that the picture of faith that it opposes is often a caricature, a straw man, as we say, of a blind faith, an unthinking dogma that is not a true reflection of biblical faith or Christian experience. But it works both ways. If science needs both confidence and humility, or Christian faith needs both confidence and humility. Because Christian faith is great. I'm not just paid to tell you that. It's true. It explains so much about our world, our life, and the point of living here. Can we see the, the blue planet uh, picture there? It's a great place to live. I don't have a love alternative, really. But Christian faith says, without the unseen realities, we'll miss the point. We will abuse it and not know what the point of it is. As Christians, we love and do not fear or avoid the big questions. You know, the, the series that we're dealing with, I, I don't like the title Tough Questions, because they are, they are tough questions, they're hard to answer. But the real title is Good Questions. They're really good questions. We love it. What's the meaning of it all? 
Why is there something rather than nothing? Is there life after death? These are great questions. Please bring them on. We love big questions because we have a big vision of faith and a mind that is expanded, not imprisoned, by our rational, reality-based faith. Uh, The late Carl Sagan was a highly influential scientist, atheist, and communicator. And he posed this question. He said, How is it that hardly any major religion has looked at science and concluded, this is better than we thought? The universe, he uses a capital letter at this point, I note, the universe is much bigger than our prophets said, grander, more subtle, more elegant. Instead, they say, no, 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 my God, small letter for God, I note there, my God is a little God, and I want him to stay that way. Now, sadly, some Christians may have mistakenly done just that. But when you read something like Colossians chapter 1, we find a viewpoint that does indeed expand our understanding of God and the universe. I used a large G and a small U at that point. Colossians 1 verse 15. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created... Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And I go to that passage of scripture because it makes clear that the lordship of Christ is part of the fundamental makeup of our universe. The first six verses give us no less than seven summaries of the entire universe. We get one all creation followed by five references to all things, plus one everything. As Christians, we affirm that there is no part of this universe that does not give scope for our exploration, our thinking, and our desire to discover how the lordship of Christ can be discerned and expressed in the truth we discover there. It's by him and for him and through him. You, me, the animal kingdom from aardvarks to zebras, matter itself, from the tiny particles, quarks, gluons, even the Higgs boson, the so-called God particle, I love that, by the way, to the distant galaxies on a scale we can scarcely imagine. The internet, election results, the whole deal, by him and for him and through him. We affirm that the whole created order is connected to Christ by virtue of its origin, existence, purpose, and destiny. And our vision can be nothing less. Therefore, any supposedly scientific venture that excludes the possibility of rational faith in God is excluding this on philosophical rather than scientific grounds. Now, we Christians also need the humility to respect those whose views differ from our own. I have sat under sermons talking about science and scientists that have made me squirm with their approach of argument weak, shout louder, and relief that none of my scientist friends were there to hear it. The assumption 
of intellectual superiority or scientific competence solely by being virtue of, a, of being a Christian is a false one. We also need the humility to distinguish between what the Bible says and our interpretations of it. The biblical text just might be more sophisticated than we first imagine, and we might therefore be in danger of using it to support ideas it never was intended to teach. For more on that, you'll probably have to wait for the time that he invites me to come and preach on Genesis 1. My fourth and final point on those lists has to do with uh, God and the multiverse. Do science and faith have the courage to follow truth wherever the truth leads, wherever the truth leads? Do we have the courage to follow the evidence wherever it may take us? And Anthony Flew is a good example of this. Anthony Flew was, for many years, a leading philosopher and atheist. And he expounded atheism. He was one of the poster boys for it. In 2004, he caused a real stir when he confessed he had come to believe in God. Probably the Aristotelian God rather than the Christian one, but he came to believe in God. And he said, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And what if people don't like that? Too bad. Many scientists, uh, Stephen Hawking included, admit publicly they are deeply puzzled by the rationality of our universe and the fact that it is so fine-tuned to support life. Uh, astronomer Fred Hoyle admitted that nothing had shaken his own personal atheism so much as the discovery of this fine-tuning. It looked, as he put it, as if a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology. Christians have an explanation for this. It's by him and through him and for him. Some scientists take refuge in postulating the existence of countless other parallel universes, the multiverses, that if you have enough universes, then blind chance must come up with this universe that we happen to be living in, because it works. Well, a scientific principle often called Occam's razor is a principle that demands the simplest possible explanation and is sometimes used against belief in God. But surely this time it has to work in favor of God over and against the postulated multiverses. And more than this, Christians assert there is good evidence, dare I say scientific evidence, that the creator of this universe becomes a human being in Jesus Christ and that the evidence for this can be examined rationally historically, and even scientifically. It was the scientist in me that led me to do this on my own, Road to Faith. And I invite you to do this investigation for yourself if you've never done it before seriously. Well, the sermon was not straightforward to follow. My apologies if you've found the, the, the route of struggle. Um, I hope the journey has been helpful and a, a conclusion with a parable trying to sum up really some of the things I've said in a more visual, verbal picture that some of you might find helpful. Just imagine two people watching television. Probably imagine that. And they're both moved to tears by the tragic but beautiful story that they've just watched. And one of them points out that what they've just experienced was all produced by electricity, integrated circuits, and liquid crystals. That she knows how the TV works. If it goes wrong, she can fix it. The other person says, that's really interesting. 
But, but did you know, it was actually a true story that we watched. It isn't fiction, it's a documentary. In fact, I know the main character it was about, and I can introduce you to them. 